morning, Job chapter 42 in your scriptures. If you need a Bible to follow along with this morning, we have some folks in the back that would love to give you one if you don't have one with you or on your device. Job chapter 42. It's an honor to have all of you with us from out of town. I know your fellowship's been great this weekend. It's great to have uh, Pastor Cannon and Stephanie with us this morning. Allison, if you don't know them, um, I'm going to have him come up real quick and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word today. That's all right. So Pastor Cannon, come on up. And uh, Steph, you're welcome to stand if you want. If you don't, sit. Allison, find the red hair in the middle. You'll find Steph. So Pastor Cannon, it's good to see you today. What a surprise. And the Lord's blessing on the preaching this morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that we just sang a few moments ago. Lord, you are the definition of holy love, your great sacrifice on the cross. Who could measure it? Even Paul said it's measureless. And so, Lord, this morning we ask you that you would plow up the fertile ground of our hearts, turn over any hard ground, as Hosea tells us, and break up the fallow ground, the sod underneath. Help us not to come with our expectations of what we think you ought to say to us, but to come with our humbled hearts underneath of you and the word of God, receiving the word into our lives. Lord, make us more and more like the Lord Jesus this morning. We worship you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Good to see you. All right. Well, I just got to tell you, I told you at the beginning that the first part of Job and the last part of Job would probably be going the slowest because the middle two-third parts of Job are pretty much three guys saying the same wrong thing about God. Uh, so I'm going to go a little slower uh, today if we don't finish this particular text that Pastor Steve read for us. Uh, then I want you to know it's going to be okay and that uh, we'll gather again next week to, to continue. There's so many wonderful wisdom truths that God would have for us in this text. I really want to try to exhaustively um, address each one and apply them appropriately. The planet parade, did you see it? The morning that it showed its brightest, my son called me at 4.03 a.m. and he said, Dad, are we doing it? And I said, yes, Caleb, come on over, pick me up. So he picked me up at 4.15 and we drove out to the Lake Metro Parks Tower in Perry, and we were on top of that tower at 4.30 a.m., and uh, the planet parade, right? Six planets, first time since 1864 that these planets arise or show themselves from the eastern sky to the southern sky. So we thought that would be the best place to see it, so we went out there, and I'll tell you, not many cloudless mornings in Lake County, Ohio. But God gave us a cloudless and no humidity morning. And each planet was very easily identified. 
Caleb has a, uh, an app on his phone. Many of you do as well. You can just hold the app to the sky and it identifies the planets for you. And, and um, we, just, we just stood there in awe beneath that which caused Job awe as God spoke to him. God spoke to Job, you know. We addressed this last week. And when he spoke to Job, he first presented himself as the God of nature. And in the second part of his speech, he presented him his own nature, the nature of himself to Job. After those two speeches that the Lord gives to Job, Job identifies three divine realities about Jehovah. He notices his power in verses 1 and 2, his sovereignty, God's infinite wisdom, infinite omniscience. And the person of God has brought Job to a place of sober and silent reflection. He's been exposed, if you will, You're right, Job was not suffering because of any particular sin, but as the months of his calamity continued, he began to doubt the justice of God, even brought some sharp criticisms against it. So having heard from the Lord in the last days of Job's suffering, Job repents. We saw that language last week. Remember he said in verse 5, but now my eyes see you. Job experienced some tremendous growth in his relationship with God with circumstances unchanged. Job recants and repents in dust dust and ashes. And isn't that the way one responds when the Lord has directly ministered to our hearts? Don't you feel like Job did when he allows you to see him? The scripture teaches that we can taste and see that the Lord is is good. The scripture speaks of aroused human senses to explain really growth in human relationships with their creator. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6. Do you recall his response when he'd seen the Lord high and lifted up? He says, I'm a man that's broken of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember the centurion in the Gospels after the Lord had healed his child? We're not worthy to even have you in our home, Lord. Remember how Peter responded similarly after the miracle involving the fish that were caught, bringing two boats to a sinking point? Peter proclaims, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. The Lord responds, Peter, don't be afraid. For now I am making you a fisher of men. These three examples, among others, describe for us the growth and intimate relationship that one can have with the Father when they taste and see that he is good. Encounters with God through his word that influence us in such a way that we can see that the Lord is good and it deepens our relationship with him. These times are most necessary in each of our lives. Remember, Job had a very solid theology. His theology could only bring him so far, though. He needed to be reminded that relationship with God is the beginning of learning of him. 
Let's seek a relationship with the Lord on a regular basis. Scholarship, theology is so important, but it's secondary to your own personal walk with God. Your theology can only carry you so long. Your personal relationship with God that gives birth to the labor of understanding theology and scholarship is always to remain most important. Remember what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 1? What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes? What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the word was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Have you trusted Christ? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good because you've known his Son? Are you born again? If you are saved, how is your personal walk with God? Did your walk with God begin with an understanding of who Jesus Christ is? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good in salvation first? Allowing that to commence your intimate walk with God. Do you enjoy quiet times of sitting and just reading God's word? Do you enjoy undistracted times of prayer? When's the last time you actually experienced even your senses being aroused because the Spirit of God took the truth of the written page and made it significant to a particular area of your life where it changed the way you live? So Job's fellowship with God has been restored and his relationship with God's been deepened. It's been good for him to be quieted before God and have his own heart exposed for the air that had been espousing about God and he's at peace with him now. Now God desires for him to be at peace with men. The next portion of Job that was read earlier is packed with profound wisdom and I pray that our hearts are ready to see and understand it. The text reveals to us that Job's friends were still in trouble with God. God confronts the eldest of these three friends, Eliphaz, as a representative of the group, and says, My wrath is kindled against you to your two friends because you have not spoken what is right of me. And then he says, As my servant Job has. I felt a bit of an explanation is needed here regarding the words, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You might say, well, Job has just repented of speaking ill of God's justice, so, so why are his friends still being hammered and not given the same opportunity to repent? It's a good question. Folks, God is addressing not Job's sin that he just repented of. God is addressing the poor and sinful speeches of the three friends 
that had been given throughout the whole middle two-thirds of this book. Remember their poor theology? It's retribution theology. They would say, Job, you're suffering because of your sin, and if you had been righteous, you would have remained wealthy. But Job said, absolutely not. All along, he said, there are wicked in the world who are rich and righteous in the world who are poor. What you're saying can't be true because I'm a righteous man. I was rich and now I am poor. No, you're, you're speaking wrongly of my, go, of my God, God Almighty. God is seriously interested in calling out what has been wrongly said of him. There must be atonement made for the grievous sin of the speeches of the friends. The demarcation God made between Job and his friends sets the stage for how God would use Job in restoring his friends' fellowship with God as well. Now we see Job referred to as God's servant, again, as he was in chapter 1. The passage also says that Job has been accepted by God several times. So as God's servant, having been accepted by God, Job has a role to play with his friends. Job's friends are to do what God had asked them to do in verse number 8. Remember? What does God want them to do? Now therefore take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and Go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offerings for yourselves and my servant Job is going to pray for you. And we find out later in verse 10 that they did just that and Job prayed. They're to take an offering. By the way, if you believe Job was written before a Mosaic time period, before the Old Testament law, I thought, I thought this was an interesting factoid the sacrifice that the three friends were asked to make was equal to similar sacrifices that God would ask the whole nation of Israel to make on the nation's behalf so three friends have apparently committed a grievous sin that required a sacrifice that would have atoned for the sin of over two to three million people. God's offended. It's a great reminder for all of us who teach and preach God's word and share it with one another to know it well before you speak it humbly and lovingly. God takes very serious anything that's spoken of him by anyone What a powerful moment this must have been for Job. Time had now vindicated his character. God had allowed his friends to see this. And now Job, in fellowship with God, is appointed by God to be the mediator of sorts between God and man. And I find this very interesting. Some suggest that Job is prefiguring Christ here. Hang on. I don't want to overdo this text, but remember, Job is enduring calamity without cause. God chose to inflict him. God chose to hurt Job to prove 
that Job valued God more than possessions, position, or posterity. Job was innocent and was bruised and now accepted by God. It would be Job who would be the accepted one, as verse 9 says. How wonderful the mercy of God is to Job's friends here. I'm certain they were born again, but even saved men can speak poorly and unjustly of God. God abhors it nonetheless, and that sin of speaking ill or wrongly of God must be confessed and repented of. And We saw in chapter 1 that Job was a priest leader of his family at this time. And we see him here officiating the same for his dear friends. As God accepted the sacrifice, he would be accepted because Job had become acceptable. Folks, God bruised Christ, the sinless, innocent God-man with our sins. Our transgressions were laid upon him because it pleased God to do so. God appointed Christ as the person that would demonstrate his love for fallen man. Sinlessness would become sin for us that we might know the righteousness of God in Christ. And God accepted the son's sacrifice for us. And friends, what Job does for his friends, he does while he's still suffering. The effects of sin are ongoing, but the forgiveness of sin is equally available, but it takes a mediator. Romans 5.8 says, but God freely demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy 2.5, you know well, God freely offered us a mediator and Paul tells Timothy there's only one go-between between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So I ask you again, have you been made right with God through Jesus Christ alone? Are you born again? Do you know Christ in such a way that he's brought peace to your heart and he's changed the way you live? For we have no gospel unless we have a changed life. J.R. Tolkien had a word for the grace of God operating in a fallen world and turning evil into good and bringing life out of death. He called it a eucatastrophe. The Greek word EU, you, is the word for good. So Tolkien called it a good catastrophe. As we entered the final portion of this piece of wisdom literature, we will see the practice unfolding of how God brought good out of evil for the remainder of Job's days. But the greatest good God sent and then brought out of the presence of evil is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greatest catastrophe. The catastrophe endured for you and for me was for God's glory and for your potential good if you would just surrender your life to him in salvation, turn from your sin, ask for your forgiveness and make him Lord of your life. There is no entrance into heaven, there is no enjoyment of the presence of God without the Lord Jesus Christ atoning for your sin and you turning from your sin and placing your faith in him alone. We've learned from the book of Job that God does what he pleases and he has purpose in what he's pleased to do. It pleased God to send and to bruise the son 
but he had a divine purpose in doing so. He had you in mind. He had me in mind when he did so. His desire was to reconcile you who were made enemies of God because of our sin back to himself and he needed a perfect substitute to do so. So Christ is the greatest good catastrophe. And Job's story is one as well as we will see here of the Lord choosing to bring good out of darkness. As we continue, verse 10 tells us something else for our learning. God didn't restore to Job all that he had lost until he was right with man too. It's very clear here that when he prayed for his friends, so much of what's happening here in verses 7 to 10 is all happening simultaneously. When he had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored to Job twofold, double all that he once had. God is very clear here that there were two breaches that had to be mended, one with God and one with man. Here we see that the Lord, by his grace, even more good coming out of calamity. Job's friendships are restored, and the Lord used him to see it happen. Job had been humbled before the Lord, and now his friends would be humbled before the Lord and Job. Job prays for his friends without resentment or bitterness. He freely prays for those who had hurt him. I wonder if this is our practice. Do you pray for those who hurt you? Isn't this the Christ-like thing to do? There's many hard Christ-like things that we're to do, and this is certainly one of them. I want each of us at this moment just to take two seconds, because it's not hard in our lives if we've been hurt. A face and a name would pop up immediately as soon as I asked this question. Who's hurt you and what's their name? If they're a believer, is your relationship still strained with them? I'm going to ask you a question. If the answer to that is, I know a person and the answer is yes, when's the last time you actually prayed for those people who have hurt you so deeply? Certainly sounds like an admonition that the Lord would have given in Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. When's the last time you have blessed those who have cursed you? Brother, sister, parent, close Christian friend, mom, dad, fellow church member. As we move on, when both relationship breaches are mended, God goes to work. Like it's vitally important to stop here and explain once again what God is doing or about to do here. Remember, God chooses to do what he does without cause, but never without intention. That's indeed what we've learned of him among many other things in this book. So God could have chosen to leave Job in his pain and loss. A lot of ground has been covered here. Job's been restored in fellowship with God and man, and he's still in his pain. God would have been just in leaving Job in his pain.
Job's now proved that he valued God above all else. He's shown he's willing to be at peace with God and man regardless of his circumstances. That's how powerful God's grace is. And if we're not right with God and man, I wonder if we misunderstand or completely unfamiliar with how capable God's grace really is. God can save my wicked soul, and he can save your wicked soul. He could certainly mend the relationship among two, between two Christians and their saved wicked souls. <laughs> I was reading that long ago. Someone said that you really don't know humility until you actually do indeed consider your sin to be greater than anyone else's sin that you know. So the story of Job could actually end right here. Job's, Job still head to toe full of infected sores, still with a fever, still with his wife by his side, His friends now made whole with him. It could just end. But it doesn't because God chooses that it not end that way. Not every story of even a godly person in Scripture ended up like Job's. Christ's didn't. Paul's didn't. Peter's didn't. The apostle John's didn't. As he ended his life in exile in Patmos, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, his didn't. God chose those circumstances for those of his children. God knows for all of them that their earthly affliction is light compared to the glory that is to follow when they reach the threshold of heaven. It was not death to die for those saints. It is not for you when you die in Christ Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For us to live is Christ and to die is gain. We know that. But God was pleased to choose to restore to Job twofold of all that he once had. The only thing that wasn't doubled was his wife. She's never mentioned after chapter 1. But she's still there. Because he's given 10 more children by her she stayed quietly and loyally faithful to her husband who's lost everything and everyone but her God restores Job's friends his finances his family his favor and his future we already read chapter 10 or chapter 42 verse 10 to 17 so God doubles everything say where did his children double well he's got 20 now 10 are in heaven and 10 more on earth his daughters are exalted with position and beauty and Job's leaves them an inheritance which is completely countercultural for men to do that at that time inheritances weren't left to daughters Again, a very Christ-like thing for Job to do, granting an inheritance in a very impartial manner to everyone in his home. As Christ has granted us an eternal inheritance in an impartial manner through salvation in him. 
The passage says that Job lived to be 140 years old. Some suggest that Job's calamity began when he was 70. And God's even doubled the years that he had lived to show him favor. But in the final description of Job's life, would be chiseled in honor upon the headstone of his grave, and Job died an old man and full of days. In this culture, you couldn't be more nobly described. God had done it all by his good pleasure and by his divine intention. The story ends very joyfully in a spiritual and a practical sense just because God chose it to end that way. If you do any study about this text, you'll quickly come across authors that will tell you, see, Job's friends were right in the first place. Job got right with God, therefore God made him rich again, gave his family back again, gave his posterity and his future back again. And I hope we understand by now that that's just not the case. God is pleased to purpose in our life, but that purpose is always with spiritual, eternal intention. I want to conclude this morning with a few theological um, applications and a handful of practical applications. For those of you who are guests, as we've been going through the book of Job, I've sought to end each sermon with a handful of both, and uh, I trust they're from the text, and and I trust they're helpful. First theological understanding I would like to addresses this, that all of God's intended catastrophes are good catastrophes. There is no evil that comes upon his children that he does not turn out for eternal good. I sat with Marie at the Cleveland Clinic yesterday. This is her fourth kidney transplant. Number four. This is the first kidney transplant that she received from a person that had deceased. The first three were from people who were alive, and this one was from a 30-year-old that had passed away. And that's the reason why, when it was, the transplant was complete, the kidney needs time to wake up, I suppose, from what the doctor said. She had received some anti-rejection medicine in her first three transplants. And one of the, you know, when you you get a prescription from the drugstore, right? These prescriptions have side effects in really, really small print. You need a microscope to read, right? But they're very, very clear from what she told me that when you get a transplant, the anti-rejection medicines will most likely cause cancer. She said that's why a lot of people that get kidney transplants decide to just stay on dialysis. But she said, I knew I had to trust God. I didn't want to be on dialysis. So I took the anti-rejection medicine, and you know what? She got cancer twice. Four kidney transplants, cancer survivor twice. One of the kidneys she got, she got from her mother-in-law, who was a member of this church, Marianne Wallace, who's now home with the Lord. And the surgeon in that procedure accidentally cauterized a blood vessel that caused that kidney to fail. 
and had to be removed. Got a tremendous infection from that. So when Pastor Steve's praying earlier that there are people that have gone through Job-like kind of things, right? It's true. But with tears in her eyes, incredibly fatigued in the hospital yesterday, with zero immune system now, all the transfusions that she's had to have have obliterated her immune system. The doctor's telling her she's not allowed to be around crowds of people for upwards of a year. Right? She goes, we've got to work that one out. But rehearsing all of these things, I'm watching her face and I'm seeing a woman who's at peace with a tender smile. And she said, Pastor, you would not believe all the opportunities we've had just this week to share the good news of Christ. And then she went back to her other catastrophes, calamities, and she started to recount people that had gotten saved through the Lord allowing them to be a witness in their hospital stay. I was with Jeff and Mary Jo in their home on Wednesday. You know, when Jeff was diagnosed in October, November, he was given two to three years to live. And here we are. Thought he might be gone already. I'm sitting in front of Jeff and Mary Jo with tears and smiles at the same time, enjoying the peace of God, understanding that all of God's intended catastrophes are good catastrophes. And, and Jeff looks at Mary Jo and he says, just tell Pastor Tim the, the opportunities you've had to minister the gospel at work just because of my cancer. Relationships with neighbors that have gotten tighter and more transparent. Folks, theological understanding number two is God does not need to reverse your suffering in order for him to be good. Go with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We studied this book last year for those of you who are guests. We took a whole year to go through it. And, and uh, when I was just reading through all of my favorite authors in the book of Job and, and meditating on my own theological conclusions, and there as this text came to mind, I remember preaching it last year, and this is kind of the mindset of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in earth and, ves in earth and vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. There it is. God doesn't have to reverse our suffering in order for him to be good. He works through that suffering a good catastrophe. What he's purposed has eternal intention. 
Verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look at the things which are seen, not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Third theological understanding is this. Job's suffering ended when his mission that God had appointed him was accomplished. You may say, this suffering is the hardest ever known to me. It makes no sense to me, Pastor Tim. Lord, I wrote this down a long time ago because it just settled my heart in relationship to this theological truth that Job's suffering ended when his mission was accomplished. Quote, inexplicable is not the same as as irrational. Inexplicable is not the same as irrational. God has a divine rationale for what he's been pleased to allow you to endure. So continue to value him above all. Because all of God's suffering appointed to his children has a good and divine end. Next theological understanding. It is good for us to know that God crushes the pride of poor theology. God brings to naught. He destroys even theology offered in a prideful way. The next encouraging theological conclusion from this passage this morning is God had really humiliated Satan along the way too. Satan's pathological confidence that he thought he could actually prove Job a materialist was completely destroyed. His belief that he could show Job valued stuff and family more than God was declared wicked and unlawful in the courts of heaven. It couldn't be done because the faith that Job had was of a supernatural origin. His faith had taught him to value God above all. And even in time of grief, suffering, Job never once in the whole text argued with God about who or what he'd lost. He just argued with God about his justice. And we saw how that was taken care of a few minutes ago. Finally, God had purposed what he'd pleased and performed what he'd purposed, and it was good. Satan's humiliated. Human worship is dignified angels are instructed God is magnified and the story is preserved now for countless children of God 
for their enlightenment and encouragement for generation upon generation. We'll finish this morning, next couple minutes here with some practical consideration. I think it's good for us to know that no man can fully bear the sins of another, but Jesus Christ carried the sins of all. If you would believe that Job was some type of example, Christ-like example here in this particular time in history, that's between you and God. But even though these offerings were brought to Job as somewhat of a mediator and he prayed for his friends and his relationship had already been restored with God, now with man, and then he's blessed, Job could not have been a mediator for the whole of the sin of mankind. But Jesus is, Jesus did. Do you know him? I want us all to understand that we can be innocent sufferers and still be the companion of God at the same time. I want us to all leave being ready to pray for those who have despitefully used you and persecuted you. When you do, you'll bear the marks of maturity, humility, and Christ-likeness. Job did not render evil for evil, and if you're going to claim the name of Christ too, you should not either. Get on your knees and pray for that Christian who's hurt you, then get on the phone and tell him you love them in Jesus' name and get that relationship right if they will allow it. Shame on us if we can't be the spirit-led servant of God, accepted by God, person that Job is. You see, folks, one author put it this way, you can be a cul-de-sac of forgiveness or you can be a conduit of forgiveness. I live in a cul-de-sac. There are times when I was a, a young dad, I would pretend like I was pulling into our driveway and then I would just continue to go around the circle. We get to our driveway again and I go around the circle again. I think the most times I went around the circle was 21 times. <laughs> Until one of my kids said, Dad, I think I'm actually getting dizzy. <laughs> right? That was a road going nowhere. It's a cul-de-sac. But Jesus asks us to be a conduit of forgiveness. He was to us. He is to us. And he asks us to be the same. There is no hurt that has been enacted upon you that is greater than the hurt you caused Christ that killed him. There is none. You killed him. I killed him. I slaughtered him. There is no one that has hurt me as much as I hurt him. Nobody. Certainly, if we understand his forgiveness for how we slaughtered him, we can freely offer it to someone who's bruised us. Certainly we can. Certainly you must if you're going to say you're walking with God. You must. I must. And I would say Job would he was alive today would probably preach that with a sim similar passion because <laughs> he actually lived it and enjoyed it 
It baffles my mind when Christians can draw lines with other Christians and remain enemies. That is not Christianity. There are children of the wrath of God and they are not saints. Anyone that's born again, I can look over their shoulder and see Jesus first. Next practical application, there will always be fair-weather spiritual friends. Try not to despise them. Seek to love them. And as we conclude, Job's relationship with God was exponentially deepened through this whole process. And there are times when there's no other conditions but the providential soil of suffering, Talbert says, that are meant to be the catalyst to deepen our relationship with God. I'll say that again. There are times when there's no other conditions but the providential soil of suffering that God allows us to endure that become the catalyst to deepen our relationship with God. And then he says this, and write this down, You'll probably have to meditate on it for a few minutes. Evil may yet be good to have been and yet remain evil. Evil may yet be good to have been and yet remain evil. God takes the darkest of our circumstances and may I say this, whether our affliction is self-afflicted or whether it's God-appointed, God's grace operates in both to bring us back to him and to deepen our relationship with him. It is never, ever, ever, ever too late to do the right thing. Don't ever allow Satan to have victory with you that he could not have with Job. First John chapter 5, the Apostle John calls followers of Christ super conquerors. Right? Super conquerors. What makes us super conquerors? Faith. Faith in the conquering King, our Lord and our Savior. Finally, it's completely human of you if you're enduring a hardship. To wrestle that out with God, it's completely natural at times for you even to fall into the sin that Job did, doubting the justice of God and contending with him. Downing his intention and his purpose. Because you know what you're enduring hasn't been because of your own personal sin. 
It is the hardest thing to endure difficulty when you know you've been living godly. You know, when you're a sinner and God brings discipline upon your life as a believing sinner, it's kind of easy to compute that. All of us have gone through that. I have, right? Difficulty comes, well, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Yep, I get that, Lord. It's a very personal thing the Holy Spirit does with all of us. It's at least easy to identify and say, get that right. It is harder to endure suffering, apparently, without cause. And many of us, if not all of us, have endured or are enduring something of that nature now. It is natural for you in your humanity to come to the place where Job did. If you have been there, and you are there, this text last week, today, it's for you. It's for you. Just confess it. Get it right. And allow the soil of that suffering to grow even deeper spiritual roots in your relationship with God. That's his purpose and that's his intention. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the truth in this text and pray it and preach it home to my own heart and may the spirit of God have his way as Pastor Cannon preached in all of our hearts and as I believe we've come today not to get what we want or what we think we need but to hear from heaven what you had for us in this hour May each of us draw the circle around ourselves and apply the word to ourselves today. And may you find the meditations of our heart, the words of our mouths going forth from this sermon acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen.